Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Greetings and welcome to Paradise Island. This is Under Consultation, a huge episode-by-episode podcast guide through the UK's greatest video game challenge TV show, Games Master. I am one of your hosts, Luke Owen. Tremendous, but not funny in the slightest. And looking forward to a nice spot of male bonding with Luke, I am Ash Versus. This episode aired on the 3rd of December 1997 and it's all change in the chart as Tomb Raider 2 beats off FIFA 98 to top the video game chart, the ensemble cover of Perfect Day tops the pops and it's Xenomorph action on the big screen as Alien Resurrection tops the UK box office. These were very, very hard to come by. So was our cargo. Whatever you got going on here ain't exactly approved by Congress. It's a military operation. Really? Who are you? Ripley Ellen, Lieutenant First Class, number 36706. Ellen Ripley died 200 years ago. You're a thing, a construct. They grew you in a lab. What the hell is going on here? He is breeding an alien species. I wish you could understand what we're trying to do here. Now they brought it out of you. Not all the way out. You want to tell us what this is? It's a queen. She'll breed. You'll die. You're quite proud of that beating off joke, aren't you? After doing however many episodes, 150 plus episodes of this, it just naturally falls out my fingers now. It could have been anything. It could have been Gran Turismo beats off Crash Bandicoot. It would have been the exact same structure. Pokemon beats off... Uh, actually, no, that's an internet search I'm not going to do. But Top of the Charts is a song we've discussed before. We have indeed, yeah. The Perfect Day, this came up in our in-between episode. It's funny in that when we were talking about how, like, oh, I'm going to go watch this after it was, uh, you know, after we finished recording it. And I, and I did. 
uh, and then immediately went and watched the Harry Enfield version of it. And I've found myself since, when the song gets stuck in my head, that's the version that gets stuck in my head. It is not the very lovely ensemble piece. It is actually just Harry Enfield, Kathy Burke, and Paul Whitehouse doing it. I also went and watched the BBC promo slash Children in Need slash charity single version, and I did watch the Harry Enfield version. I'm not going to lie, I don't think the Harry Enfield version has aged very well, and I didn't find it very funny. That's not to say you're wrong for finding it funny, I was just expecting to find it funnier, and I just watched it and went, yeah, I, I wouldn't have bothered to do the entire song. I just felt that the joke kind of outstayed its welcome a bit. Maybe that's just me. It, it certainly works for me from a nostalgia level, which is more or less what I got out of it when I, I've, I've watched it since and when it has cropped back into my head. It is, oh yeah, that character. Ah uh, yeah, that character and all of that sort of stuff. Doing something for nostalgia, Luke. Would we ever stoop so low? Yeah, it's, it's for pricks, that. It's number one for two weeks at this point, but I think, doesn't it also have another week at the top of the charts? Or another... It certainly hangs around the top ten. Yeah, it's number one again. Um, it, it's not quite. It's almost our last ever number one. So it does return to the top of the charts one more time. Yeah, uh, right at the start of January. Oh, they must have run out of copies of Candle in the Wind. But yeah, it was released for Children in Need, uh, one of those rare occasions where... A charity single is actually good in its own right and sadly has never been released since. And that's purely because of the way in which it was made and the clearances that were gotten both for the original promo video and for the later use for children in need. Because, particularly when it came to the charity thing, everyone that appeared in the music video got a payment of £250, which is the lowest amount a star could be paid by the BBC for an appearance but because of that they couldn't re-release it now i'm not sure maybe they could re-release it for children in need if they did it for another charity run but they certainly couldn't put it on any commercial compilation because that would break the agreement that was originally made the way they would be able to do it is once every single person who features in the song is dead and it's just all of the estates get together and agree upon a re-release. Yeah, so we'll be waiting a little while, uh, certainly because some of the people in that video were relatively young. It depends on how desperate boys own half a cash, I guess. Ah, so they'd roll over pretty quickly. The Bowie estate will certainly have theirs, and there'll be a few other estates, but then there will just be some people who are alive now being like, I could do with a little bit of bunt, so I'll sign up for this. It And the gimmick of doing this kind of like multi-artist compilation collaboration thing, it's something the BBC went back to the well on a couple of times. Uh, they did it once with children's television programme. I think it was called Future Generations, which had a small child that was like Ian Hislop in it, I seem to remember because I think it was the joke at the time on Have I Got News For You, was that it looked like Ian Hislop. They also did another music one where they got a whole host of musicians covering the Beach Boys' God Only Knows, which was basically all about promoting the BBC's new music division. There was one common artist between Perfect Day and the God Only Knows cover, and that was one, Sir Elton John, who, I believe, is still retiring from touring uh, as of recording. A last note on Perfect Day, or rather a last note on Lou Reed, who passed away in 2013. And at the time he passed away, Cardinal Gianfranco Ravasi, the Vatican's culture minister, tweeted lyrics from the song, Oh, it's such a perfect day. I'm glad I spent it with you. Oh, such a perfect day. 
you just keep me hanging on as a nice little tribute to Lou Reed. It was quickly followed by another tweet where the Cardinal said, I don't condone drug use because apparently that song is about a lot of drug use. Allegedly. Allegedly. Well, we've got Alien Resurrection at the top of the UK box office, so maybe we can dive a little bit more into that next week because we've kind of gone a bit long on Perfect Day chats. The key to it really is there is one person that we can't really talk about much at the moment who is kind of instrumental in getting this movie done. Scorny Weaver nearly didn't do it because she thought that the idea of doing AVP was a shit idea. She was mostly right. Hey now, Paul W.S. Anderson has, has told, because Ridley Scott did tell him, that AVP is the third best movie to feature the alien character. I would disagree strongly. I, I, I've, I've been thinking about it ever since you told me that in an interview. I've been thinking about it. I'm like, I think I actually agree with Ridley Scott on that one. I think I would rather watch AVP than I watch 3 or Resurrection. A- AVP is fucking stupid, but at least it knows it's a bit stupid. I would agree that I would most likely watch AVP over Alien 3 or Alien Resurrection, but... I still think Alien Resurrection is a better movie than AVP. It's just, you know, AVP is a popcorn bucket movie. You know, you just sit there, you have a bit of a laugh. It's very stupid. Hey, there's Lance Henriksen. It's a good time. Whereas Alien Resurrection has some really great performances and some harrowing scenes as well. The scene with the clones is the one that always springs to mind. Like that's, uh, it's the one that I reference the most from the, the movie. Even in sort of day-to-day life, you're talking about something like, oh yeah, that would be as if you know Ripley walking through the, the hall of clones. Although even then, the gravitas of that scene is almost capsized by Ron Perlman at the end just going, what's her problem? Fucking weirdo. <laughs> that is the, uh, the, the writer of the movie. People thought that it was an Avengers thing, but nope, it's the way he's always written and it's always been a problem. But we'll skirt around talking about him next week. There's not really that much to talk about within the TV news. Connie Huck made her debut on Blue Peter and will present the show for 10 long years. Uh, And on the same day, December 1st, Aaron Carter, at just 10 years old, releases his debut album, making him the youngest male artist since Michael Jackson in 1969. 10 years old, man. Like, I mean, it's put in the box that comes up later to shame. I mean, there is a name that I do not remember, and I could not tell you anything about him, that debut album, or anything that happened after to him. I think he's related to one of the Backstreet Boys. I'm pretty confident on that. I'm, I'm not going to go to Google to double-check that. Instead, Ash, I'm going to ask you, what's going on in the magazine? Well, one of the big pieces of news in Games Master magazine right now is to do with Resident Evil Director's Cut, or more specifically, the demo of Resident Evil 2 that came with Resident Evil Director's Cut because that was the big selling point for the game. Sure, it had some new content, sure, it had some scenes uncensored, but it gave you your first chance to essentially play in Raccoon City, a veritable butlins for zombies, as it is stated in this magazine. Yeah, it's kind of the same way of, uh, we, we mentioned this previously, Final Fantasy VI getting released on the PlayStation. It came with a demo for Final Fantasy X on the PS2. And I would wager that although people were excited to, to play Final Fantasy VI, the fact that it came with a Final Fantasy X demo, I mean, it's one of the reasons I bought Final Fantasy VI on the PlayStation was for that demo disc. 
and I know of people that got the Resi Evil director's cut because it came with that demo disc for Resi 2. I mean, it came out just before Christmas and Resi 2 was due out, what, March, I think, of 98? Yes. Yeah, I think it's March, yes. I think it's like January in Japan and I think we get it in March time, yeah. Director's cut costs 35 quid which most i i seem to remember mostly i was paying 40 45 quid for games so they were aware they they weren't going to be cheeky enough to try and charge full full price for resident evil director's cut but it's an enhanced version of the original game you get that demo of resi 2 i am about 97 percent certain that i bought it because i wanted to play that demo of resi 2 i mean i was so psyched for resi 2 this is around the time I got my PlayStation chipped. Mm. And I think I got the American import of Resident Evil 2. I know I got the American import of Metal Gear Solid. But yeah, I think I got the American import of Resident Evil 2. Oh, I love Resi 2. I still do. I loved Resident Evil 2 Remake as well. That to me is one of those perfect reimaginings slash remakes in that there's still newness there. But... It's taken the rose-tinted spectacles of my memories of 1997 and gone, here, here's a game that's mostly like that. Yeah, it's a really, really good remake. Uh, there was a thing on Twitter uh, recently of just like, you know, four games you would take onto a desert island. And I put up original Resi 2. And someone replied to it being like, you must be the only person in the world that would take the original over the remake. And I think I still would. I have put sunk more hours, which is going to happen anyway, because I'm a much older person than I am now. I'm not a teenager with you know unlimited time on my hands. I've sunk way more hours into Resi 2. But even now, if you gave me the option, I probably would pick up PlayStation Resi 2 over the remake. And that is more because I'm not an action game player, but I am a survival horror game player. And Resi 2 Remake is definitely more of an action game exactly. although weirdly when i go back and play resi 2 now the original all the first resident evil or resident evil remake they are slower than i remember them being Hugely there are some games so. that are faster but there are other games that are slower and i think that again comes into why resident evil 2 remake fits my rose tinted memories because i'm just like oh yeah this feels as fast as i remember it being yeah it is a lot slower and i think uh the tank controls are never going to be looked upon fondly because they're an imperfect way of playing a game like that but i've never been that bothered by tank controls for me i'm only bothered by tank controls if i've played either another game in the series or even the same game with a level of remake or remastering where the controls have been refined because it's like trying to step backwards. Yeah. And that's just me personally as a gamer. Other people manage it far better. It's a thing. It, it's reprogramming that part of your brain to go back to how you played a game in 1998 as opposed to how you have played games since 1998. With Resident 2, it's difficult as well because it sets you starts you right in the action. It's not like Resident Evil 1 where you can sort of like figure out how to walk around the entrance hall to the mansion. Resident Evil 2 is your start there and there are three zombies walking towards you. You'd have no time to get used to the controls again. But yeah, it's like the, the action side of Remake is what has stopped me from playing it more. I've not finished the, the remake in fairness. And it's also the reason why I am not as hugely keen on Resi 4 as a lot of people are. I, I appreciate that it's a great game. 
it's just it's not what I wanted from a Resident Evil game at that point in time. Now, I love Resi 4. I still need to play Village. I still haven't played Village. It's too fucking scary. Too fucking scary. I can't play it. I had the same problem with Resi 7. It's too fucking scary. I can't play it. That's fair enough. I played I played Resi 7 and I was, it was during the day, 2 p.m. or whatever it was. And I just sort of like had an hour and to, to play a game. So I downloaded Resi 7 and I played it and I got through sort of like the first section of it. And I then basically just convinced myself, no, I'm just done playing with this game for now. I'll come back to this at a later date. Broadly because I just didn't want to play any more of it. I was like, no, that's that's enough for me, I think. I'm just going to, no, I'm, I'm too tired to play that game now. I'm going to play something else instead. One last bit of news, by the way, and this may become of interest to you because i you know i believe video game movies are kind of in your wheelhouse it has been said yeah final fantasy the movie biggest game on planet goes hollywood this will be spirits within then that's pretty much it although they don't have a name for it just yet the article says not content with having one of the biggest selling games in history in the form of final fantasy 7 Square have announced plans to turn the hugely successful final fantasy series into a potentially blockbusting movie Final Fantasy the movie is going to be a fully rendered Toy Story style affair rather than a live action shoot. But don't expect the jolly bright colours and comedy aspects of Disney's huge moneymaker. Square will want their outing to keep the dark mood of the games. One surprise is that the movie won't feature the characters from the seven games, although we have heard that the hero is going to look a bit like Brad Pitt. The team working on this sci-fi extravaganza include Disney animators, people from The Fifth Element, and the man responsible for the jaw-dropping intros to Tekken 2 and Soul Blade. No dates have been set for the film's release. Final Fantasy joins Doom as games with movie spin-offs currently in production. Okay, that Doom one's not going to be around for a little while either, because that's 05, I think, Doom comes out? Might even be 06. So it's a little while off from, from Doom. Final Fantasy Spirits Within, I think we get in the next couple of years. Might be 99, maybe early 2000s. I remember the big thing about Spirits Within is that every strand of Ming-Na Wen's character's hair is animated. So it's like the most realistic hair that had been featured on screen at, 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 you know, at that point in time. But it was not enough to make up for the fact that it's a bit of a dull movie. I actually have quite a soft spot for, for Final Fantasy The Spirits Within. I think I would like it even more if it was just called The Spirits Within. The Spirits Within. The fact that it's called Final Fantasy is it's, it's the biggest albatross around it. I don't mind a movie that, that plods or that builds tension or that is slower. I mean, I recently rewatched Silent Running. I mean, that movie is a movie that's all about pacing and tension and it's just, you know, it's better for it. And The Spirits Within is a beautiful movie. I mean, it's still looks damned gorgeous but final fantasy 7 had set the world on fire and people were expecting that not ghosts and mana and monologues to camera because it's not even just seven eight is is a is a big hit by the time that the movie comes out as well like it, it square had almost set a bar for Final Fantasy and what people wanted was just more of what was on the games. You know, even in that article, it says there that none of the characters from the seven games are going to feature in this. But And I think that's kind of what people wanted from a Final Fantasy movie. Was not just a movie that is set within a Final Fantasy-esque world, was a Final Fantasy game writ large upon the screen. Kind of like what we get with Advent Children 
in oh 05-ish, I think, maybe 06-ish. And yeah, I know a lot of people that have way more issue with Advent Children than with the Spirits Within. Yes, because it's not very good as Advent Children. Yeah, Spirits Within, bit boring, but actually very well made. Advent Children, it's a bit fan video-ish, isn't it? Like, very high production. Oh, yeah. It's a very expensive fan video. Good evening, and welcome to Games Master. Here on our desert island, drowning is a constant source of life-threatening alarm, which is why we always have an inflatable close to hand. Helena has her lovely little ring. Leanne has her fantastic jet ski. And I have this enormous stomach which has been grafted on by the Department of Health and Safety for added buoyancy. Games Master comes under fire a lot for being uh, misogynistic and, you know, the, the Girl Fridays in the same way that the Angels and the Mermaids were just there to be eye candy and they bring on celebrity guests that are just Bucky O'Hara's fit birds that Dom fancies so he can just do a bit of flirting with them, this, that and the other. But a lot of the comedy within Games Master's writing, and particularly Dominic Diamond's writing, is British in that it's very self-deprecating. And this is honestly like, you know, fifth, sixth, maybe even getting into double digits of Dom making fun of his own weight. And it feels like this is the second time it's happened in this series alone, and we're only three episodes in. It certainly happened multiple times over the past couple of series. Uh, I remember the trip to the um, the beach, fake yeah. beach, yeah. Like I'm someone that who at this point is quite not sensitive about their weight, but self-conscious about it because I work hard to keep my weight down, put a bit back on. And I'm looking at Dom here and I kind of just want to reach through the screen and give him a hug and go, mate, you're, you're fine. Yeah. But it is worth saying that whilst, yes, he does make himself the butt of the joke, whether deliberate or not, this intro contains possibly the most filthy joke in Games Master until later on when Kirk makes an equally filthy joke about the same part of the anatomy. Yeah, yeah, Kirk's line, I think, is the real kicker for the episodes. Because he says, Helena has a lovely little ring. Does she now? Leanne just gets a jet ski. No gag there, other than the fact they're both inflatables. Genuinely, the first time I watched this episode back for this podcast, I went, did he mean it like that? And I rewound it and I'm like, it's 1997 and it's Dominic Diamond. Of course he meant it like that. You, you chump. Yeah, particularly because Kirk has the line later on. It's very intentional that it is that she has got a lovely little ring. In the same way, it's very intentional that he says that the Girl Fridays always have inflatables close to hand. He's talking about their boobs. Or sex dolls. It could be as well. Uh, or maybe, you know, they're talking about the animals that they encounter later on. I've got my own theory about that, but we'll get to that. We'll get to that because Girl Fridays. What have we got coming up on today's show? Boxers Ryan Rhodes and Khalid Shafiq beat each other's meat in Street Fighter X. But we begin with an event which we like to call Three Big Men Get Hard. It's our first instance of not knowing the title of Street Fighter EX Plus Alpha. I mean, you look at that title screen. I entirely get it at that point in time because you've got Street Fighter. Okay, that's a constant. That's a solid. But then we have EX plus an alpha and arranged in such a way. Is it Street Fighter plus EX alpha? Is it Street Fighter alpha EX plus? Is it Street Fighter EX cosine divided by the power of three plus infinity equals alpha? I mean, it's, it's a confusingly titled game. The only way you really know how to say it is that the title screen will tell you so. 
Street Fighter EX plus Alpha. Which is one of my favorite title screens because you can almost hear the PlayStation disc do that little scratch sound as it loads the next audio file because it just goes Street Fighter EX plus Alpha. I love the PlayStation disc sound noises. That kind Me of like the, the, the thing that you, almost sounds like a shimmer, like a brrr thing that it does when it's like it is literally skipping tracks. Or when it slows down and it doesn't just stop spinning or rather cut the motor, it actually properly winds down and like decelerates. It makes me think of, oh, there's another line of dialogue coming in Resident Evil. It's a real giveaway for when you're about to go to a cutscene or a lot of games. <laughs> but anyway, we've got a challenge here with three big men getting hard. What are we playing, Games Master? End of this challenge, my three contestants take on three different tasks on the N64 title, GoldenEye. The first task is to rescue two hostages from a hijacked frigate. The second contestant must race through city streets in a stolen tank, searching for an elusive level exit. The last member of the trio finds himself on an enemy train. First, he must stop the train by destroying the wall-mounted brake pads. Then he must battle his way to the final carriage, where he must rescue the awaiting damsel. Finally, he must burn his way out of the carriage with his handy secret agent with swatch laser. The three tasks must be performed within an overall time limit of four minutes. Oh, I do so enjoy a touch of male bonding. This is a big old challenge, this. It's a big old challenge. It's a very fun challenge. It's a multi-stage challenge. Games Master gets a great joke involving the word bond, bonding, lovely stuff. I've said it before and I've said it again. I'm still really hacked off we didn't get GoldenEye multiplayer. I just don't understand it, Luke. Yeah, it's, it's quite perplexing. I mean, is it because this is just a review board, maybe, that it didn't have, or, you know, like a, a pre-alpha board, so it's not got the full game on it you know that series two era of games master maybe or is it just that they thought it would just look naff on tv because at least with the other multiplayer things they've done they've had them on separate monitors or you know like separate arcade screens whereas this would just be all four on screen at the same time yeah and you'd have to crop and zoom to get them taking up an entire part of the screen and yeah i okay that'd be my only thing i could think of they they thought it from like a from a production aspect, it, they probably thought that's not going to look very nice on telly. And in fairness to them, it, it probably wouldn't. However, it's it would have been my preferred option. I mean, I think about future UCP lives and doing a GoldenEye challenge. And that one would be easy to a degree because we'd just use the Switch version. And that means it would be automatically upscaled. And so we'd be able to do, you know, sleight of hand stuff and it would look fine. But yeah, at this time... It would look a bit ropey. I, I think I'm just still on that thing of we're in this last season of Games Master and we're just never going to get at challenge with a four-player Nintendo 64 game. 
we're not going to get the Mario Kart 64. We're never going to get Diddy Kong Racing, which, you know, comes up later in the episode. As for any of the wrestling games, which are all amazing four-player experiences, not going to happen. And I'm still salty over it. I am as well, because I think had we got Series 8, we probably would have done. You'd have thought, wouldn't you, there would have been certainly a wrestling challenge because that's all on just the one screen. I have got to think there would have been something. But GoldenEye is a game. We've talked about it before, and I'm sure we will talk about it again as time goes on. It is a game that I think did for the Nintendo 64 to a degree what Final Fantasy VII did for the PlayStation. Because whilst GoldenEye for the Nintendo 64 did miss that kind of release window of the movie it was ready in time for tomorrow never dies they went oh well you're going to see the new bond movie play the video game of the last one but it's really good and it was really good and i would argue it was definitely worth the wait this was no shovelware movie tying game certainly i think you could certainly make the argument that this is the most well-remembered game on the N64. When you kind of sort of consider that library of games the N64 has, even just top-level stuff, Mario 64, Ocarina of Time, everything like that, I think from a casual plus hardcore, just everyone perspective, if you polled 100 people of what's the game you remember from the N64, I think you'd get a massively high percentage saying GoldenEye more than any other title. I would be inclined to agree because you didn't need to own a Nintendo 64 to experience and enjoy GoldenEye. You just needed to know someone who did. That's exactly it. People will remember the multiplayer. I remember going to a friend's house at lunchtimes and playing GoldenEye with him and a couple of other friends. It was just a thing of like, oh, we can get there in about five minutes or so. And then that still gives us a good half an hour of playing GoldenEye multiplayer. And I think from a group of people gathered around a console experience of first-person shooter, the only thing that's come close since GoldenEye for me was the Time Splitters series, which had some commonalities between it and Time Splitters 2 in particular. You can feel the GoldenEye leeching through into the game. I, I would completely agree with you on that. I was going to say Time Splitters was the only other one I could think of. That and we played a lot of uh, Quake 2 on the PlayStation on four-player multiplayer. My problem I always had with GoldenEye as a multiplayer game, though, it, but, you know, my friend had an N64 and he had GoldenEye, but him and his brother were amazing at it. And I was that kid at school who was, no, I only ever really play FPSs on PCs because that is how I consume my, my FPSs. So I could never quite wrap my head around the strafing and the control scheme of GoldenEye on an N64 pad. So I don't ever have a lot of that nostalgic love for GoldenEye multiplayer because my friend and his brother were too good at it, so they just always won. There was no like even playing fields or even like a close first or second. It was just those two and a pile of bodies that were the rest of us. The recent remasters came out for the Switch and the Xbox and they had their pros and their cons. There was a full HD remaster that was done by members of Rare for the Xbox 360 that was never released. Wink, wink. You can find copies of it out there that, to be honest, looks bloody excellent. And then there was Goldeneye Reloaded, which originally came out for the Wii 
and was then later released for the Xbox 360 and the PlayStation 3. It was a game I didn't actually play until lockdown, when I kind of fixed up my PS3, gave it a full clean, redid all the heatsink compounds, stopped it from melting down when I booted it up, and I picked up a copy of it off of eBay, and I played it, and as a single-player experience, it's remarkably good. They made it the Daniel Craig era of Bond, so they removed some of the goofier elements, but it's a really good single-player game experience. Couldn't tell you anything about the multiplayer, but I appreciated what they did for it as a single-player game. It did, however, highlight something which I think I've held up before as a reason why some people don't like GoldenEye as much now, is that if you play games of the same style, where the controls have moved on, it can be difficult to go back. We mentioned it only earlier this episode. I was about to say it's the Resi 2 conversation all over again, isn't it? Particularly with first-person shooters, where you've got the early days of analog looking yeah and i had it with goldeneye as well which was ps3 so only really one to one and a half generations removed from the modern games i'm playing and i had it with time splitters future perfect when i was playing that on the gamecube and it was just a case of going either by controller or by implementation in the game why can i not be as accurate as i'm used to it's a strange feeling it's difficult to take yourself out of the mindset and approach the game kind of without bias caused by what you've played since. Do you know what I found to be a really bizarre thing when I think back to my struggling of the controls with GoldenEye is that fire was not one of the face buttons. It's it's odd to think now because that is all what shooters are now. It's, it's using those triggers or using the R bumpers or whatever it is. But using the trigger, the Z trigger for firing, I found to be just this real alien concept, particularly because it's your left hand. And your left hand for me was just, that's the way you move around a, a screen. What I wanted was A or B to be my fire button. No, I get that. It uh, It's weird that something like that now is second nature. Second nature. Same with racing games. Racing games, accelerate. You've got one trigger will be accelerate, other will be brake. You try and go back to a game now where those things are assigned to face buttons, it's weird it feels wrong because we've had at least two or three generations of games which have gone no trigger buttons for that yeah everything's on the trigger buttons now nothing's on the face buttons this is one of those challenges this is very much like the pilot wings challenge we had in series six where it is a three-stage challenge and we have got kind of a gimmick of having three army guys in to do this challenge one of them will take on each various levels but it's quite involved as well because the first stage is rescuing hostages then the second one is escaping the city through a tank and then the third one has got like five or six steps that you need to do before you escape out of the final carriage and rescue the final hostage i love the fact that okay if we're not going to get multiplayer for whatever reason we are getting three distinctly different areas with distinctly different goals although the commonality of all these levels is don't kill the civilians Luke, it's a simple goal. I mean, and hopefully they won't. Now, this is a tough guys challenge. So we've gone out and got three tough guys who, like me, are paid to repel foreign invaders. Please welcome from the Marines, Marine Del Cross, Corporal Mark Hewitt and Sergeant Dave Pierce. Okay, now, uh, obviously, you're all Marines, you're all very, very hard, like myself. What, what's the hardest thing that you've done uh, in the service then, Dave? Well, I would say um, operating in the Scottish Highlands, actually, in, uh, in winter, uh, yomping around the mountains, uh, which we do out there with all our kit, 
um, in those sort of harsh conditions. Now, Mark, what about you? What's the toughest thing you've had to do? I think probably deploying to Norway for uh, Arctic training. Uh, commando unit normally goes there for up to three months during the winter months each year, and uh, that's quite demanding. Mm -hmm. And uh, and Dale, what about what about you? I've got to say the six-month deployments away from home. Yeah. What's what's the tough about that? Who do you miss? Oh, you miss the old beer and uh, <laughs> yeah. getting thought, down. I thought you were going to say like your girlfriend or someone like that. Oh, your no. wife. But it's just the beer. Yeah. That's fantastic. We like that. That's a 90s man thing. And finally, if all three of you did have a fight, who's, who's the hardest? Dave. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we keep Defending the right there. That's good. That, that's the way to go on uh, in the service. And they should know better as well because we do have some proper army cadets here who literally drop into the studio from like that sort of abseiling position as if they could, like they have play this helicopter sound effect and then these three lads just drop in. Genuinely looks really cool and you can tell it looks really cool because dom is well chuffed that it looks as good as it does like clearly dom knew all right these lads are going to abseil in that's going to be cool and then it actually happened with like the wind machine going and this that and the other and he's just like a kid just stood there just going do you see that they abseiled <laughs> down that was pretty cool they literally have like a close-up of his face that is just like yeah, that was well good, wasn't it? Wouldn't have got that in Series 3, would you? It's also one of those interviews where Dom is playing it straight. Like, this is not, what are your pants like? Have you got a girlfriend? This, that, and the other. This is just straight down the line, very respectful questions. What's the hardest thing you've had to do? You know, what's the hardest thing about being in your profession? Granted, like, the punchline of that is, who is the hardest? But it still feels very much almost respectful of a way to that he didn't go down the usual dom line of questions i mean mate they're marines they could kill him with a spoon certainly dave he's apparently the hardest i do love the different answers we get because we get scottish highlands the kind of like exposure to the elements this that and the other similar with mark arctic training dell being away from home oh why is that is it your girlfriend is it your mum? no i miss the beer Great final answer. Genuinely, Dom seems thrown off by that. He's like, I was expecting a chance to make a girlfriend joke. And he does actually say, that's a very 90s man thing. <laughs> and I love it. It's just like, who is the hardest? And you can all just hear them go, Dave, it's Dave, because he is the man in charge. So they're, you know, very respectfully, all just saying the man in charge. Dave's got him well trained. Early last week at the Space World Expo in Tokyo, games giant Nintendo unveiled the products they hope will establish the N64 as the games console. And since we're called Games Master, we thought it only right and proper to bring you an exclusive look at the show's highlights. F-064, the update of the old SNES classic, is not due for Japanese release until next June, but it already looked promising with tons of races on each track and the usual array of multiplayer options. This isn't just any old news item within Games Master. This is a new special 
that also teases a sequel. Yeah, we've got Space World Expo, Nintendo showing off some of their latest and greatest games for the coming year and maybe even beyond in the case of a couple of them. But, oh, there's some great titles in here, some great franchises as well. I love that Dom is just like, well, you know, we are called Games Master. I suppose we do have to show these things. Yeah, we can't just do jokes about people's rings and whatnot. I, can't, I just want to show you Alien Resurrection stuff, but nope, I've got to show you these video games instead. Sorry about that. First Out of the Gate is a sequel to one of my favourite racing games on the snares. It's F-064. I appreciate what they did with F-064. It's not my favourite of the F-0 sequels. I would agree with you. I, what I think from this little clip, though, is... It looks awesome. Like, if you kind of consider this as the evolution on from how it looked on the snares to what it now looks like in the 3D realm on the N64, it looks awesome. The speed of it, the amount of cars that are on the track, you know, they're talking about the multiplayer options and everything like that. It looks like it'd be really fun to play. It just isn't quite that when we get it into, you know, actual practice. No, I mean, the version that we see here and that the public saw at Nintendo Space World Expo was like 50-60% complete, but was running at a reliable 60 frames per second. This thing was buttery smooth and they basically did go with speed over detail so a lot of the backgrounds were quite basic there was a lot of fogging this that oh, and the yeah. other but when you are going at that speed you're not noticing that no you're not it's literally just a blur it had a great soundtrack a lot of remixes from the original I really, really like the F-Zero series. I feel like I should give this game another go. It is on the Switch Online expansion, so I do have access to it. And I do have my Nintendo 64-esque pad up there that works with the Switch Online expansion quite well. So maybe I should go back to it. Maybe I should see how it's held up. Yoshi's Story will be out for Christmas in Japan, and while it retains the 2D look of its predecessor, it's a good bet it will be the best 2D platform game in Christendom. one that they've got here Yoshi's story is very much a perfect time capsule news item of what the state of video game was here in 1997 because we saw this with the games master magazine review of castlevania symphony of the night you know the very first thing they talk about there is this is disappointing because it is not 3d and that's kind of what Dom is saying in this thing about Yoshi's story it's out for christmas in japan but as you can see from here this is a 2D game, and that feels rudimentary at this point. That feels like a big step back in what everything else is trying to do. It's a shame as well, because I own this game, and I think like my younger siblings inherited my copy of this game eventually. I loved Yoshi's Story on the Nintendo 64. Really infectious soundtrack, soundscape, SFX and everything. And it was just, it was a beautiful, fun game. 
it did get a lot of praise for its looks because even though it's 2D, it's a beautifully sumptuous illustrated world. It was, however, quite easy. It, it's kind of got the same problem that Yoshi's Island had on the SNES because by the time that Yoshi's Island was out, the Saturn and the PlayStation were out. So a 2D platformer like that did feel like this. You know, when we did that Yoshi's Island challenge in Series 5, it felt like a real throwback to a challenge of Series 2 because of the way that the game looks. And yeah, Yoshi's Story has just got the same thing because it's a 2D game, even though it's using 3D models. It feels older just comparatively with, you know, when you sort of compare it to the F-Zero footage or even the Zelda footage we get later on in this news item. One thing I hadn't realised until I was doing my digging for this news article is that a few years from this point in time, Nintendo unveiled the Game Boy Advance. It was the successor to the Game Boy in the Game Boy Color. And one of the demos they used when they unveiled it was a tech demo that was derived and used graphical elements from Yoshi's Story for the Nintendo 64. It featured a pre-rendering rotated island, it showed the various rotate and zoom skills of the Game Boy Advance akin to the Super Nintendo's Mode 7, and it, it was very, very rudimentary. A lot of the things that Yoshi could do in other games, like the tongue and throwing eggs and this, that and the other, wasn't there. But it did show the hardware potential of the Game Boy Advance. Sadly, never became a full game. But I've got a Game Boy Advance. And I've got a flash cartridge for it, so I can put in the fan translations, the homebrews, the beaters. And oh. just showing Mr. Owen on Would the camera. Look at that. There it is running on my Game Boy Advance. A little blurry, but it is perfectly playable and controllable. It's a little bit floaty, and obviously it was never designed to be played, but it works. It would have been an amazing selling point for it, because how good that would look on you know, a portable device. Because the big thing in the game, the, the GBA, was like it was 32-bit on a, on a handheld. I mean, admittedly, the version I just showed you looks extra shiny because this Game Boy Advance has also had a new IPS screen fitted to it that's slightly larger, slightly brighter, yada, yada, yada. But I just, it, honestly, it made me want to go and again, play Yoshi's Story on the Switch Online because I just sat there playing that earlier today going, oh, I remember how much I love this game now. 1080 snowboarding is the next title from the programming team responsible for Wave Race 64, and they should take cool boarders down a dark alley and beat it about the head. I've got a similar thing with 1080 snowboarding, and we talked about this with the release of Alpine Surfer when they had that the arcade challenge last series of snowboarding becoming a very big thing in the late 90s because not only did you have Alpine Surfer, you've got Cool Borders on the PlayStation and Cool Borders is going to become its own franchise. We are on the precipice, you know, we've got that Top Skater Challenge coming up in a couple of episodes time, I think it's in fact next episode, along with the release of Tony Hawk's, this sort of like extreme sports as becoming a very, very popular thing here in the UK in particular. It's very much in the in America, but it's going to transport over here to the UK in the late 90s into the early 2000s. And 1080 snowboarding is just a great example of people getting really into the idea of extreme sports and the X games and things like that. Yeah, I mean, and this one came from some of the people behind Wave Race 64, previously yeah. featured and ranted about on Under Consultation. Again, no multiplayer being on display there. God damn it, I've just... But the thing that got me the most about this game was that one of the people behind it, uh, Giles Goddard, who was also one of the people behind Wave Race 64, was also 
the person responsible for the 3D Mario face on the title screen of Mario 64. And that one just blew my mind because I can't believe they outsourced that. Or, you know, that wasn't developed in-house by a Japanese programmer because Mario's the flagship. Just showing off what you can do, I guess, with your skills. Um, hey, it's still one of the most memorable bits of Mario 64. How many hours were lost to people contorting Mario's face on that title sequence and turning him into absolute goblin mode Mario. Weirdly though, whilst we see this game here and it did get released in February in Japan and April in America, we would not get it until November 1998. And what was the reason for that, Luke? What was the reason for that, Ash? They thought if they release it in the winter, people will buy it more because winter, Luke, it's snow. British Opera House Rare was shown the 3D Mario-type game Banjo-Kazooie due for release in April, the month of lots of games with stupid names. I mean, up next is a game we've talked about a bunch on this show. I mean, when you had Cliff on for the uh, the N64 launch episode, it's one of his favorite games. In fact, we use some of the music from this as our intro portion to the uh, the seventh series of this. Banjo-Kazooie, or as Dom introduced it as, Banjo and Kazooie. He clearly, though, does not like the name of this game because he talks about how we should see this in April along with other titles with equally stupid names. Speaking of the amazing Cliff, I did actually drop him a message earlier going, hey, guess what? We actually get to mention Banjo-Kazooie in timeline on this upcoming record. And I asked him for a quote and he said, quote unquote, it is the greatest 3D platformer of all time. And Cliff is never wrong. Cliff has been flying that flag that Banjo-Kazooie is better than Mario 64. I think from this item here, you can tell that Dom is Dunzo Dunzarelli with mascot platforms. Uh, but in fact, actually, the fact that Banjo-Kazooie is, you know, they tout it being released in April here. The fact that this game is being released in April is why one of the games we get later on in this episode is reviewed as a Christmas release. Because much like with Peter Molyneux and Dungeon Keeper and its delays leading to the release of High Octane, the delays on Banjo-Kazooie also led to the creation of a racing game, or rather, the reskinning and reversioning of a racing game. The reskinned of an already reskinned already reskinned racing game. But yeah, we'll get to that later on. It's funny because you've got a much more apt comparison, whereas I wrote in my notes, oh, so it's the sonic spinball of racing games. Dr. Robotnik's Mean Bean Machine yeah. <laughs> would also work as a comparison from that. The interesting feature on Banjo-Kazooie when I was kind of you know reading up about this, and actually I'm, this is something that I was not fully aware of with this, is that they had this idea that was going to be called stop and swap because while rare were making this game they found that the n64 retained several seconds of memory basically it would remain a little bit of memory for a few seconds after a cartridge has been taken out so their thought was well if you take out banjo kazooie and then instantly put in mario 
and instantly put in Donkey Kong 64, there will be a little bit of memory left over from Banjo-Kazooie that can interact with the Donkey Kong 64 cartridge, and that will unlock some new contents. So they would do that with all of their games, Jet Force, Gemini, Perfect Dark, Conker's Bad Birthday, this and the other. And Nintendo said, I think this will just damage consoles because what you're asking consumers to do is to rip out cartridges and then slam other cartridges in as quickly as possible. This is just going to damage consoles. Nothing can possibly go wrong. <laughs> it's, it's a terrible, terrible idea, but I appreciate the out-of-the-box thinking because it was where we also encountered the problem with the concept of multi-cart Nintendo 64 games was, can we have a multi-cart game where people just have to swap the carts really really quickly which always struck me as weird because well you know you didn't have to have a memory pack for the nintendo 64 you could have done multi-cart games you get to the end of the first cartridge and it's like save game please switch off console and enter cartridge 2 and you could only play cartridge 2 when you had the save game file yeah. it's kind of the same way that the playstation will work with uh with multi-disc games is you don't necessarily need to put disc one back in once you progress to disc two or three, you just won't be able to do anything unless you've got the save game file. Banjo-Kazooie, I would say, I mean, it is a very, very good game. I'm not going to get into a fight with Cliff about it. I don't know if I would consider it the greatest 3D platform of all time, simply because I don't think I've played it enough to make that judgment call. Same tease. Did, however, get compared a lot to Mario 64. And I think that comparison is unfair. But the main reason it happened is critics didn't have anything else to compare it to it's doom it's why we're still in this in our own timeline here we're still getting first person shooters called doom clones because that is just what magazines and you know tv shows like games master are just comparing it to because that has almost set the gold standard and yeah like you said there mario 64 has now set the new gold standard but it is also currently the only comparable. And to speak to something which, you know, has been an axe I've been grinding on the Nintendo 64 for a while now, in timeline, originally this game was going to have multiplayer modes. Yeah. <laughs> One of the programmers recalled the fact that the team were working on a four-player mode for Banjo-Kazooie, only a few short weeks before Nintendo was set to give it their seal of approval. I mean, that's the theme with Rare, because you look at the multiplayer in GoldenEye, that was another one that was chasing the uh, the deadlines, as it were. But that, along with the plans for additional worlds and this, that, and the other, they just decided it's too much. We're already kind of like bulging at the sides of this cartridge. And in fact, some of the ideas they came up with that they kind of removed from Banjo-Kazooie were eventually just put into Banjo-Tooie, something that actually happened a lot with Nintendo 64 games. But the one we're all waiting for is Zelda 64, now over two years in development and rumoured to be the biggest cart ever. The game is scheduled for the spring release in Japan and if these shots are anything to go by, it looks set to knock Mario 64 off the best game ever slot and make thousands of people who don't already have one steal money from their mum's purse to buy an N64.
here we are, two years in development. Zelda 64, still just being called Zelda 64 at this point, should be, should be out in spring. Now this, it's funny that they don't really talk about Banjo-Kazooie being a sort of a Mario 64-esque game, but Zelda 64, they're very upfront here being like, this could very well knock Mario 64 off the best game ever pedestal because you, you kind of think the footage we've seen of zelda 64 on games master up until this point this looks like such a huge step forward from those original shoshinkai footage that we saw like at the tail end of series 5 this looks like a as it is now a wildly different game a wildly more fleshed out game we're riding Epona through the big glancing glades and stuff. Zelda 64 and what will become Ocarina of Time just looks stunning. I look back at the development process of this game and this game was being developed at the same time as Mario 64 and Mario Kart 64. All these three games were just like churning through Nintendo at the same time. But the biggest difference with what became Ocarina of Time is that development started on Zelda 64 and fairly quickly migrated to being part of the 64DD Distrive peripheral because they were worried about the size of the game and about trying to fit it onto a cartridge. It's too big. But then they migrated it back to cartridge because they were worried that the data they were shifting required too much bandwidth for the 64DD. So it's like, ah, oh, smeg. Okay, we've got all the space we need now, but we can't read the data quick enough. So it ping-ponged backwards and forwards. And that's why we have this development cycle, because it was a game that kind of didn't have a home for a little while, or at least the homes that it did have, it wasn't really right for until we land back in the N64, back in the cartridge realm, and become Ocarina of Time, and become the game that we now very much know and love. Because they were developed concurrently, one thing that I think is sometimes forgotten is technically, although Miyamoto will say he doesn't think this to be the case at this point, but technically Mario 64 and Ocarina of Time are running on the same game engine, but the extended development cycle and also the sheer amount of motion capture work that was done for Zelda 64 and in fact just the way the entire game ended up looking, it became such a modified game engine that Miyamoto was like, no, that's that's not the same game engine anymore. And it's easy to see why he would say that because the two games look a world apart. Like, not even just by being different styles, but it, it almost feels like Zelda Ocarina of Time is a generation on from Mario 64. I mean, part of that is down to Mario 64's style. It's big primary colours. It's kind of like very bold cartoon-like textures. Whereas Zelda feels like a world. It feels like a living world albeit a living world where you have to learn to play the ocarina well there's uh, it's a living world that people also adore to this day there were leaked images recently of uh new lego sets that are coming out that are legend of zelda themed and the deku tree is a big part of that that's gonna be like one of the sort of like you know a tier sets that are going to be coming out for lego most of them probably will be around the the breath of the wild sequel but there will be some like legacy sets. It, I think it says a lot about the fandom for Legend of Zelda that Ocarina of Time was almost like the first port of call. You know, like for Alphas like me, it's Link to the Past, it's Link's Awakening. But really, like this is the biggest game within the franchise that has had way bigger games since. Again, kind of like what we're saying with Goldeneye, 
this is the game that people will probably go towards if you were to pick 100 people and say, name me a Zelda game. With PlayStation sales so astronomically high, with everybody in the world owning at least three or something, Nintendo has its work cut out, but with titles like Zelda now just months away, the battle is only just beginning. In next week's programme, we'll be looking at the other huge event of the show, the N64's Double D add-on. And no, it's nothing to do with breasts. How many Playstations did you own, Luke? Well, no, I just had the one, even though it was that one I had to put on its side for a bit, because that was the only way you could get games to run. Then it was flipped upside down, and then until that stopped working, then it was back up onto its side. And then eventually, I think it did go back to living on its back again. I realised, actually, that I own two PS1s, but one of them... I don't know where it came from. Mm. Like, it's in storage, and it's a later generation PS1, but before it became the smaller kind of like marshmallow PS1. But it's after they removed the um, the component ports from the back, and I think it might be an NTSC one, but I couldn't tell you whether it was an NTSC American or Japan. And I found it when I was sorting through the storage locker, and I'm looking at it going... I don't remember where I got you from. But this is what we were teasing up earlier as well, that this is quite a big news item, but next week we're going to get a sequel news item to that. And it's actually not in the news, it's in the features. It's going to be closing the show, a very, very big feature on the 64 Double D. And it's got nothing to do with breasts. But as a bit of a tease for next week's episode, the DD is the least interesting bit about that feature. I mean, you say it's got nothing to do with breasts, but on the whole, the 64DD definitely went nipples north. See, I'm stealing your lines and throwing them right back at you. <laughs> OK, joining me in the commentary box is Rick Henderson. Rick, you're no stranger to uniforms yourself. Well, I do like a, a, a nice nurse's uniform, but I often find they're two sizes too small for me. Very good. Uh, now, this is a, a three-part challenge. Uh, the guys have got four minutes to complete three tasks. Marine Del Cross is up first, Rick. He's going to rescue two horses from the ship. What is the best tips you can give him? Well, the best tips is get through that frigate as fast as possible. Get through each of the rooms as fast as possible. And when you actually find a hostage, really be careful with your accuracy. You do not want to kill the hostage, because at the end of the day, if you kill a hostage, you'll lose five seconds of your time. Five seconds, five second penalty. To, to say nothing about the moral implications of it either. Back to the challenge, we got Rick in the booth, who has a very good line about nurses' uniforms. But I don't know why. I just assumed he was already wearing them. Do you know what I mean? Like the way that Dominic says, do you like a uniform? And he says, oh, I'm quite partial to a nurse's uniform myself. I was like, that, and the joke is he's wearing them. And then I was like, so what's the, the follow-up joke to that? And then the actual joke is they're two sizes too small for me. I was like, oh, I'm in a games master, like writer's mode. I just assumed that was already what you were thinking. We've already had the girly special where they were frocking up. So maybe that's why your brain just went there. But I mean, I got the joke they were going for, which is just like, oh, sexy nurses, you know, naughty vicars. Oh, yeah, I like a woman in a sexy nurse's outfit. It's the thing again. Well, yes, it is lads, 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 lads. Also, the butt of their own joke. It's self-deprecating humour. Which I'm I'm always a fan of self-deprecating humour. So I guess maybe that's why I see it for self-deprecating rather than anything else. I would say of the three, Dell has the easiest task here. And because it's also A, the shortest, and B, it's the simplest in that go through, kill a couple of people, save some hostages, don't shoot the hostages. Don't shoot the hostages. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, you wouldn't shoot the hostages, Ash. That, that's paramount to the success of this, this challenge is to not shoot the hostages. So I don't think he's going to do that. 
I mean, one, there's a five-second penalty, as has just been stated. But also, Luke, think of the moral implications <laughs> of a Marine, a member of the British Armed Forces, the Queen at this point, the Queen's Armed Forces. Can you imagine if he shot the hostages? It would be even worse if he then laughed after he did it. That would be shocking. That would be shocking. I did really like laugh at that, though, when they talk about how, like, don't shoot the hostages because it will be a five-second penalty. And there's a little pause and Domch goes, to say nothing of the moral implications either. <laughs> there is some amazing delivery in this challenge. I mean, when the challenge gets underway, the immediate knob gag is great. Oh, yeah. Dom just going, Okay, that huge, big, long, dark thing is a gun. That big, long, dark thing. That's a gun. <laughs> not his penis. Yeah, not his massive dick. And it's at that point that he shoots a hostage straight away. It's like the first thing he does. Yeah, it's the first thing he does. Shoots him, shoots the hostage with the gun, not with the penis. And then he turns around and shoots the other hostage. I mean, it's one way to speed run the level. Just yeah, shoot everything. Because that's all he had to do was rescue those two hostages. So he shoots the second one, level end. We've got four minutes to do this whole challenge, and he managed to do that within about 40 seconds, 37 seconds it took him. But because he then incurred that 10-second penalty, it took him around 48 seconds to get this all done. I do wonder if you ran the entire thing and just immediately just shot both the hostages, could you actually get, with the penalty, a sub-30-second time? That's what I was thinking. I think there is a, certainly a way to do that. But anyway, Mark is up next, and he has to drive a tank. But thankfully, he has Rick as sat-nav. That's the, the one element of this challenge that you've kind of got to separate out what's on screen as a finished product to what was happening on set. Because when we get a finished product, we've got piped-in noise of kids screaming and kids cheering and things like that and sort of other ambient noise. On the actual day of recording, it would have just been Rick saying, turn right there. If he goes down this straight and then takes that next left, he'll definitely be on the right path. No, next left. <laughs> because of how it's done in the sound mix, it sounds like they'll never hear the instructions that Rick's giving. They may as well have big headphones on like that Tomb Raider challenge we had in episode one. But no, it is very much Rick being like, you know, if you if you go down there, take your third right, you'll be on the right path. There is a brief moment where we think Mark is taking after Dell, uh, but turns out, no, he didn't run over a civilian. It was a bad guy. You can tell that because the civilians are wearing nice slacks. But Luke, good news, purely by luck, he's taking the right route. <laughs> I've written here, he is taking the right route because Rick is yelling the right route. And also, just to keep it up for the team, Right at the end, he does run over a civilian. Well, we can't go through this without running over one innocent person. That would be madness. That'd be absolutely crazy. So that leaves him with, including penalty, two minutes. It's half the time gone. Bearing in mind as well that they said that Dell probably should have done his in about 30 seconds. And Mark, I think, got through it in pretty much bang on the time he should have done. They are slightly behind here because of Dell. But I think Dave should be fine, even though he does have the most to do. Yeah, Don runs through all the steps that he needs to do. Rick just says, remember, kill everyone apart from, you know, the civilians and your fellow agent. Don't kill your fellow agent, Don't whatever do you do. And if anyone you leave behind alive will be chasing you at the end. But two minutes, it should be doable. It should be doable whilst not killing civilians. It also would be doable if Rick wasn't a huge distraction at the start of this, because 
he goes through and he shoots a couple of people. And then Rick says, and there'll be another person that'll be coming up just behind him right now. And so Dave turns around to shoot that person. And that person does not show up. And Dom does call him on it going, oh, you're wasting time here, Rick, aren't you? And Rick's like, yeah, I just don't want him to win. So he gets the first brake pad, then shoots someone directly in the face, which Rick is my opening line, where Rick goes, yeah, that, that was absolutely tremendous, but not amusing in the slightest way, not something we can do. <laughs> but it was pretty funny. But it was pretty funny. So he's got one minute to go, and this was my favourite moment of the whole challenge, because all he's got to do is shoot the brake pad that's directly in front of him. <laughs> he shoots everything but the brake pad and uses every gun to miss it it is stormtrooper level bad aiming (laughs) it's a cobra commander levels of not being able to hit anything my favorite thing is because he essentially runs out of bullets he ends up having to use the laser on the watch and immediately becomes a ruthless clean killing machine like he holds up that watch two bad guys run around the corner and he just like he burns a hole through both of their heads with it he's just like boom you're dead. But he gets to the final room and there's your co-worker, your fellow agent, your love interest, depending on how au fait you are with the film. Don't shoot that person. Oh, she's dead. Oh, yep. Yep. 100% shot her as well. But then it's like, okay, well, there's 13 seconds to go. Mate, just get out of the level. Get out of the level. Get out of the level. That watch he's been using to kill every soldier he can find, he suddenly can't get to. Yeah. And therefore, the time runs out they all fail the challenge it's an absolute fucking shambles it's so funny though not nearly as much of a shambles as the post-match interview (laughs) bad luck guys let's deal with you in order of play here Dell, first of all uh, interesting tactic actually shooting the hostages rather than rescuing them now yeah i thought that would cut down on time mucking about with the sights just go around and blast (laughs) the whole house down so you're about seven seconds over (laughs) and then Corporal Mark Hewitt took over and played a blinder. You just you tore through that level, didn't you? Yeah, I think that was the easy part. There. It was just driving through and uh, remembering the route. So uh... that's not bad. That's not bad. And then, with two minutes left, we've run into the highest-ranked member of our triumvirate, Sergeant Dave Pierce. A gun the hole, shoot everything in sight, using every single weapon, bonanza. <laughs> No, I just utilised all the weapons I had, which I remembered I had. <laughs> and I thought the watch came out the best, actually. Well, uh, it's uh, unfortunate. I thought the guys haven't uh, won a joystick. It's been a pleasure to have you on. And it's good to know that the safety of Britain is in great hands, as long as it doesn't involve trains, frigates, <laughs> hostages, or watches with lasers in it. Thank you very much indeed. Particularly because Dell thinks killing the hostages would have made things quicker. Mark thinks he had the easier part. He did. He had a tank. And Rick telling him the directions. And Dave just utilised all the weapons that he had available to him. He was just going through there using all of the guns, all of the watches, all of the bullets. And sometimes, Luke, sometimes he hit things. We get a very bizarre little piece here because you know dom has his outro line of like the safety of britain is in great hands as long as it doesn't involve trains frigates and watches and then has a second outro line talking about how we're not going to reveal 
the details of the punishment because it involves a vacuum cleaner and a pineapple. I assumed the punishment was getting ready for like uh, cheese and nibbles. So the vacuum was cleaning around the furniture under the rug and the pineapples would be to make those little cheese and pineapple things on the cocktail sticks. Maybe maybe one of the hedgehog kind of things that yeah, you get. Get a little pickled onion on the end of that. You'll be fine. Yeah, but it's a bugger for the splinters. So maybe that's why it's a punishment and not a punishment. But then we get a butchering bit of cutting here and a butchering bit of editing and sound mixing. Okay, so now while our three Marines face punishment for their abysmal failure, the uh, exact details of which we can't reveal in a family show, suffice to say it involves a vacuum cleaner and three pineapples, you can take a look at the celebrity challenge. Because Don was clearly supposed to throw to something else, but they cut around it, cut in a different line. It's almost like an under-consultation episode at times here. And they just cut to him throwing to the celebrity challenge. Hey, now, <laughs> my notes here said, this actually makes me feel better about myself. <laughs> I don't think I've ever done an edit as wonky on this on under consultation when covering for when we have done a colossal f up or got something completely wrong. I think we're more professional than this edit, Luke. Thank you. I mean, in fact, actually, there is an edit in episode two that you did a masterful job on. When I was thinking back to it, I was like, I wonder how that's going to come out in the edit. And I was like, oh, no, Ash just cleaned it up. Probably by just sort of taking like almost like an AI, just like, I'll just take your line from this other episode and I'll pull that in here. I did take a couple of words from elsewhere and use them there. And occasionally, and I think I've discussed this before, if I really have like an absolute dick of an edit or kind of an excisement to deal with, I will just pull the mic down because obviously it's the same mic. I will launch Zencaster, which we use to record, and I'll just record a patch because then it will sound exactly the same when I drop it in. But it is smoother than uh, this little butchery that we get here to throw to the celebrity challenge. This is the editing equivalent of, you are very good at turning me on. <laughs> Similarly, I thought this was the this was the Games Master equivalent of um, the uh, Homer Simpson on uh, Dateline with the sweet cans with the the babysitter. <laughs> sweet cans, <laughs> sweet cans. Mr. Simpson, Mr. Simpson. No, may not have actually happened. <laughs> yeah, dramatization may not have happened. Oh, that's such a good episode. Uh, but anyway, we've got a celebrity challenge. Let's find out what it is from Games Master. Today's celebrity challenge will be a no holds barred strap on Street Fighter Alpha X, the 3D version of the classic beat-em-up. Playing as old favourites, Chun-Li and Ryu, my contestants have three rounds to settle the differences using a variety of lethal moves. Hooray, it's beat-em-up time! Oh, so it's Street Fighter Alpha X this time round. <laughs> Street Fighter Alpha X number five X plus three section C beta version. <laughs> it's 3D Street Fighter, which was originally just called Street Fighter EX, then EX plus, then EX plus Alpha, because there were at least three versions of this game. Yeah, and this is the one that I know the best of. We talked about this one when it came up in the magazine. We had like that magazine news item that covered all the new street fighter games that were coming out this is the one that i had and you know like i've got a lot of fond memories of, of ex plus alpha not only just for the, the title screen that i was talking about earlier street fighter ex plus alpha but also scalamania 
and what a, a brilliant little character that he is. And I actually quite liked playing Street Fighter in 3D. Do I prefer it in 2D? Absolutely, I do. And I would always go back to play. I like I played more Alpha 3 than I did EX plus Alpha. But that's not to say that I ever had a bad time with EX plus Alpha. And Skullamania is still out there today because I think I actually sent you a picture of a game that he appeared in on the PS4. That's right, yes. So he's still out there. He's also actually, he he crossed the line. He's appeared in an SNK game. Oh, yeah. He's popular amongst, you know, the real cool people. He is popular uh, within the Street Fighter fandom. And fans of Kamen Rider because that's what Skullamania is. Yeah. He's a ripoff of Kamen Rider. I love Skullamania. I mean, he's called Skullamania. What a great name that is. Skullamania sounds like it could be its own game. Skullamania sounds like it's a, a hair metal band from the 1980s. Would have toured with Halloween. That is a band I would absolutely go and see. But yeah, I'm a big fan of this. And I'm glad that we get to see this as a challenge as well, because, you know, it's Street Fighter has been such a mainstay of Games Master. We've pretty much had Street Fighter in like almost every series to a degree. I think it's Series 5 didn't have one, I don't think. Um, series 6 definitely did. But like, it just feels like Street Fighter's always been with us. So it's nice here in our final series of Games Master, we do get to have one last bite of the Street Fighter apple, especially now that it's in 3D. I'm kind of gutted that whilst, yes, Skullamania and other of the original EX characters have appeared in Fighting EX Lair and these other kind of like spin-off games, there hasn't been a Street Fighter EX collection. That's a shame because there are some great Capcom fighting game collections out there and I would just love to have these games in a nice pristine collection with the artwork you know all the value-added features you get on like the Capcom and Konami collections and stuff like that it would be nice for these to get the same level of care given to them probably won't happen yeah it's a shame that the I, I guess it almost feels like Capcom's a little bit of a shame of it because it's they don't really do a lot of the 3D stuff and then you know after this they go very much back to the 2D route that maybe they just thought that's where Street Fighter is at its best I think it may be partly that. It may be that it wasn't actually developed by Capcom. And so Could much be, like yeah. Skullamania has gone on to appear in other games and other franchises. If they can't come to an agreement with Arika, who developed the series, then obviously it can't happen. But it's a shame. Ladies and gentlemen, Games Master Productions in association with Channel 4 and a couple of other blogs present to you the main event. Three rounds of Street Fighting for the Street Fighter Championship of the World. Uh, presenting to you from Sheffield, England, the British WBO and IBF Intercontinental Champion, Ryan Rose. And presenting to you, the challenger, King Carly Chaffee. Ladies and gentlemen, let's get ready to rumble. Sorry, viewers, I've always wanted to do that. Obviously, Dom has his joke here, which is just like, sorry, I've always wanted to do that. But you can tell that Dom has always wanted to do these big ring intros. The only sad thing is, is he does just have a Shure SM58 on a, a long XLR cable, which is fine. It's a very, very good microphone. I've got half a dozen of them myself. But it is not the traditional Shure microphone usually used for boxers, which is much more the radiator grill style that sits in the hand mm -hmm. like that. It's the sort of microphone that um, 
Metallica currently use. Actually, you can they've got a really natty black and red one that they have on these really cool custom mic stands. But yeah, he gives this the beans. And actually, the boxing trappings they have around this are beautiful, including the round cards being brought out by the Girl Fridays and the way they actually distribute the, the cards between the two of them. That's just beautifully done. The bell sound effect, ding, ding, ding. And all the, just all these boxing trappings make this a better challenge because the gameplay itself is kind of scrappy. I really like the actual presentation that we have of this challenge. And two interesting people that we've got here. Two boxers, which is why we've got them doing a, a fighting challenge. One of them is Ryan Rhodes. And Ryan Rhodes has got quite a prolific career. Was never like a a, a huge name, but it's only got an excellent uh, pedigree to him. You know, has only got a handful of losses in his professional career that kind of ended it back in 2012. But the other lad they've got on here, Khalid Shafiq, who they introduce as King Khalid Shafiq, because he's thought of himself as the next evolution of Prince Nassim. So he is King Khalid. And he is 16 years old. Uh, Khalid, I'll start with you. You are very young for a professional yeah. boxer. You're only 16, but you're allowed to fight professionally. How's yeah. that? Well, the main age in England is the boxer, 18 years old. Um, but we, got, we managed to get a license in Ireland so I can box on the continent until I'm 18 and box over here. So why, why don't you just wait till you're 18? Are you just hyperactive? Are you just looking for a fight? In the amateurs, I'm not getting paid for it. Why fight for a medal and when yes. I can fight when I get paid for it? That's exactly my same attitude to present in this show sometimes. Now, here in the UK, you had to be 18 to fight professionally. And he didn't want to fight at an amateur level because you don't get paid in the amateurs, whereas if you fight pro, you get paid. So, much like Take That doing offshore tax evasion, he went offshore to get his boxing license. He went to Ireland where he could get a license that would allow him to fight overseas. Now, it's worth saying that in 1998, he had his first fight overseas and he lost. He got pretty much embarrassed as well because the person that he was boxing against was not supposed to win. This was almost like, you know, the the spider lad from the Rocky movies. This was supposed to be like a, a, an exhibition sparring thing for him to win and he doesn't. This guy... His, his life did not get better because I actually found a document referencing Khalid and his story of how he got there. I found it as part of a test for people learning English as a second or third language. And it's an article that was originally part of Young People in Britain, which was published by the Foreign Office. And the idea is that you need to write the correct form of the verb in the bracket. Now, I couldn't find the original article this came from, but what I could find out by putting in the correct verbs is that he got his start in boxing as a way to try and avoid getting into trouble. He was always getting into trouble on the streets. He was always getting mixed up with the wrong sort of people. So he tried lots of different sports. He tried diving, swimming, cricket, but it was boxing that kept him coming back, uh, an outlet for his aggression, his confusion, his whatever was going on in his life. And clearly, particularly after that match, where, as you say, he was embarrassed, he fell back into old habits because he ended up going to jail. Uh, he was jailed for his part in a brawl that led to a murder of a Sheffield teenager 
in 2002. And he was 21 years old at the time, so he was obviously a few years older. But him and a number of his friends, they began fighting with a 17-year-old in Sheffield. But the violence escalated, they got thrown out, it continued outside. And the poor kid was stabbed in the car park with a bread knife. And CCTV caught the fight. And while he was not responsible for the stabbing itself, he was implicated in the acts of aggression and what escalated to that. And his trainer, Brendan Ingle, I've got a quote from him here where he just said, what a wasted talent. Shafiq was an absolute nightmare. He could have been brilliant, but he just wanted to be a gangster. I think as well for, for Khaled, going by like articles that I was reading about him and sort of like his, his boxing career, Bucky O'Hare is, and actually, you know, like sort of boxing forums and people talking about him from sort of like, you know, uh, the early 2000s and stuff. He was a lot of hype. You know, they like the whole him calling himself King Khaled because we've got Prince Nassim wasn't just him. That was kind of a lot of people putting that on him. You know, one of his trainers said, oh, he's probably the closest thing we've had to a, a boxer of this caliber since Sugar Ray Leonard's. You know, he is getting a lot of hype and a lot of praise put on him at a very, very young age. And the very first thing that happens to him is he gets embarrassed and it's instantly dish over. That's it. His entire boxing career is ended in one fight. Now, usually one fight, one loss wouldn't hurt you that much. But that one loss, when you've had all of that hype around you, like from, a you know, looking at the wrestling world, it's CM Punk going into UFC. All that hype, all that pyro, all that ballyhoo, and he loses in a match that essentially can be a gif. Like it is some it, losses like that when you have that much hype around you can be so incredibly damaging to a career. I mean, to use an even older wrestling analogy, brawl for all, Butterbean versus Bart Gunn. Yeah. As you said, he was called King because he was meant to be one better than Prince. Stuff like that didn't go down well with Nazim. There was actually a pull-apart brawl once at his trainer's club. It's a very, very sad state of affairs that things just things just fell over. While I get the guys together and tell them that I want a good, a clean fight, no punches below the belt and no pulling up each other's pants, you can take a quick commercial break. Sandy Shaw, the barefoot bohemian and the irrepressible yodeling Lulu. Whoa, give it welly, Lou. Two women who dared to be different. How dare she come and dag them? How dare she do what she does? A double whammy of Brit Girl Power next Saturday at 9 on 4. You bet you. Enjoy an amazing 20% of all wine when you buy six or more bottles at Tesco. But hurry, they won't be around forever. Each clown is given a control hit of real oranges. Of course, we are careful not to harm any of them. Run, you large, slow clowns! Yes! Yes! Most are retrained as estate agents. In five years' time, you'll be buying a house from one of these pointless little men. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Uh, who wants some? Hail to the king, baby. Ray Nightingale, top London stylist. Some of my clients ask me why their dandruff keeps coming back. Fact is, they use head and shoulders so the dandruff goes away. But then they go back to their cosmetic shampoo, so no wonder the dandruff came back. Specially formulated for frequent use, head and shoulders gives daily protection against dandruff, which cosmetic shampoos wash away, so dandruff can come back. With head and shoulders, that doesn't happen. New look head and shoulders. Forget dandruff. Have beautiful hair every day. When you're doing something right, keep doing it. On the Adam and Joe show tonight, Bad Dad, Vinyl Justice, and more distressing cruelty to stuffed toys. These shock pictures just in. <laughs> the Adam and Joe show, tonight at 11 on 4. That looks ridiculous. Street the fighter eggs. We have got middleweight Ryan Rhodes, super featherweight Khalid Shafiq, and in the commentary box, don't know what weight he is, and I'm not going to ask him because he's bigger than me. Uh, Kirk Ewing, uh, Kirk, I, I know you. I know you're a boxer. You've been inside many a ring. Ah, uh, but never yours, you deviant. No, that is true. Um, uh, tips for the boys on this. Well, I mean, this is Street Fighter. I mean, it's got a heritage, it's got history, you know, I mean, it goes all the way back and the same things always apply. But I always like to think that maybe you should always just remember to just do some simple stuff like punch and kick and jump and just move around the Instead ring properly. The special moves? Well, the special moves are there, but don't get caught up in trying to find the buttons. Just get in and lay in about them. I'm sure the guys know that already. So, I, uh, obviously, I love the, the opening gambit here of Kirk has never been inside Dom's ring. That's very, very funny. But this is the thing I wanted to pull Kirk up on. I mentioned this kind of in the the the, uh, the first half of the episode because spoilers for this Ryan wins. Obviously we'll go through the challenge first, but Dom says in your post-match interview, Khaled, you were doing way more special moves in practice, but you didn't do any of them here. Now Kirk in his opening piece here says, "We all know the moves, but maybe you're actually better off just going for the punches and kicks." Now Kirk is kind of saying that as a bit of fun. Hey, we all know the special moves are very fancy, but let's not forget how good punches and kicks can be. I wonder if Khaled took that to heart, because that is all he does in all three of these fights, apart from the third fight, where he spends half of it doing nothing. 
this is, for the most part, Series 1, Series 2 kind of Street Fighter fighting game play. This is also why, for the most part, you shouldn't have celebrities playing fighting games on this show. Oh, absolutely. Like, you think of the standard that we've had for fighting games over the last couple of series with, you know, the Game Crackers on Tekken uh, or, or Virtual Fighter, wherever it was. Then that Street Fighter Alpha challenge we had in Series 6. Tetsujin. Tetsujin, absolutely. This is such a step backwards. I could not agree with you more that we probably shouldn't be putting celebrities in these positions. You put the celebrities on the big arcade machines that are just like, you know, with the huge peripherals around them. That's kind of, I think, the role that you want to be having celebrities on at this point. As we alluded to, the trappings of the boxing event save this challenge because we get the bell going ding, ding, ding. We have Girl Fridays carrying out the round cards and the fight gets underway. Khalid is Ryu. Ryan has picked Chun-Li or had Chun-Li picked for him. And it's a slap fight. Until Ryan discovers the spinning bird kick, this is very much just going for punches, going for kicks, whiffing most of them. And then Ryan sort of discovers how to do the spinning bird kick and goes for it a number of times. Later on, like the two and three fights, it's basically all he goes for. It's it's spamming, I think, would be the appropriate term. He yeah. is spamming that move. It actually does count out to be quite close, despite the fact that Khalid is doing no special moves whatsoever. But Ryan gets the win with a, a little cheeky sweep to take round number one. The tables are kind of turned in the second round after we get after we get another round card come up. And whilst whilst we continue to get that spamming of the spinning bird kick, Khalid just manages to chip away at the damage with punches and kicks and just little little knocks and taps and then he turns the tables he gets his second round with a leg sweep of his own it wasn't a decisive win by any stretch of the imagination it was it would the, the energy bars were very very close at the end but it also gives us our best possible situation for any fighting game challenge which is we need to go to the third round even on a scrappy fight, it's always better from a tension point of view. But the bizarre thing is, when we get into this third fight, for the first 20 seconds of this fight, Khaled does not move. To the point where it looks like, for all intensive purposes, he's put his controller on the floor. I wondered, is there a chance he pulled the cable out? That's what I was wondering, if it was something like that. Like when he celebrated that victory at the end of the second round he'd knocked his controller or something because it's just he's not moving he's not doing anything he's just being pushed into the corner by the punches and kicks and ryan just dominates i've just been back and reviewed the footage we had some var there's an analog controller there and if i remember the ps1 correctly if you press the analog button didn't it dick around with uh, the controller like if you click it in yeah yeah so i'm wondering if that's as likely as him pulling the cable out it's not even just that he has stopped playing because like he's, you know, a bit lost on what he's doing. There's a moment when Ryan is doing the 100 kicks and he is just standing in front of him not reacting to it whatsoever. So it's just each one of those 100 kicks is whiffing. It's nothing but air. Canada's just standing stock. So yeah, I wonder if it, you're right, it's just you knock that analog button, the little red light comes up. And then if you're not then pressing... Having said that, like he still could have pressed the other buttons. Don't know. Don't know. It's, it's, it's odd. It's very weird. But it does mean that Ryan essentially dominates the final round. Khaled makes a bit of a comeback, 
but Ryan wins and quite appropriately enough does get the win with the spinning bird kick that he's been doing the entire time he's been playing this game. And gets the wonderful exploding sun background. So it makes it look quite spectacular. A nice ending. Okay, Khaled, starting with you first. First of all, you're beaten by a girl, which is going to take a wee while to live down. Now, secondly, I was watching you guys practice, and now in practice, you were pulling off a lot of special moves as Ryu, but I didn't see them in the actual match. In the dressing room, like you say, um, I was doing quite good. Uh, I guess Ryan was the best man today. Well, he certainly was the Ryan. First of all, I suppose you did have the weight advantage over Khaled. Nothing compared to the weight advantage that I've got uh, <laughs> over everyone. Khaled did pull around back though. You won the first one, Khaled won the second one. Were you worried there at all? Um, I thought when Khaled pulled the second one back, I thought uh, I got memories in the dressing room when, when uh, he was beating me in there, but uh, I held my own and I come out the successful one. Yeah. Dom here. Oh, Khaled, you were beaten by a girl, were you? Nope, he was beaten by Ryan. Well, I think whatever Khaled said in response to that was something that they realised couldn't go out because there's another awkward cut there. Lots of mad cutting around this, yeah. Um, but this is where they talk about how like he was doing lots of special moves in practice, but didn't do any of them in you know the actual playing of the game. And he basically just says, like, ah, I thought I was doing all right without them, but Ryan was the better man on the day. You know, Dom takes another opportunity to put down his weight and I just want to give him a hug again and just go, mate, it's not that bad. I get the impression, garnered by Ryan's final answer there, that in practice, Khaled was winning all of them. And this might have been like the first one that Ryan has won. Just got to go the, sort of the answer he gave that that was the impression that I got. Yeah, and I don't mind that they acknowledge that there was practice and that there was I a like green it. room they were, they were they're playing around in. It's like, it, you know, we're, we're not going to believe that people just haven't played against each other or haven't played these games before. But yeah, still, Ryan is undefeated as a competitor in a professional fight environment, I guess. He's our winner. Being Scottish, I've had more than my fair share of cute and bouncy little redheads. Sadly, this one's only a marsupial. Crash Bandicoot 2 has arrived on the PlayStation. Yes, the Bandicoot is back with a whole host of new moves and characters. The original was a bit cutesy for me, but the sequel is a little better around the edges. The look and presentation on this game is stunning. They've really pulled out all the stops on it, utilising the PlayStation's high-res mode. It's one of the first games to do so, and it's something you will see a lot more of. There are a lot of amusing touches in this game, none more so than the death scenes. They're so funny, you almost want to crash into something that will kill you just to see them. Crash and get frozen to a block of ice, disintegrated, burnt to a cinder, turn into a huge transparent angel that gracefully ascends upwards. All of these things make a game, and it's the little touches that really bring a smile to your face. Now, there are some interesting additions to Crash Bandicoot 2. The jetpack level is seriously good fun. You've got motorised surfboards, Crash swinging from vines, crawling, leaping around and spinning as he usually does. You get to ride around on polar bears. The thing is quite interesting and thoroughly enjoyable. It goes without saying that if you like Crash Bandicoot 1, you'll love this game. I really like Dom's intro line of this being, you know, being Scottish, I'm used to my fill of cute and bouncy redheads, but this one's a marsupial. I mean, beggars can't be choosers, Luke. Again, I love the way that the reviews are done in Series 7. It's sad we don't get any next week, in fact. But they kind of talk about how, like, oh, you know, I thought the first one was a bit cutesy, but this one's now got a, more of an edge to it. 
and that's because it's using the high-res mode on the PlayStation. I mean, there's a lot of reasons that it's a bit more edgy than the original game, but I don't think it's anything to do with them using the high-res graphics mode on the PlayStation. I think it's to do with changes they made to the character designs. You know, there, there were new characters being introduced. And Coco makes her debut in this game. Yeah, I was going to say, a Coco Bandicoot. But yeah, no, Coco is the, the younger sister of Crash, brought in essentially because Sony uh, in Japan were like, I think Torna's too sexy. So can we replace her with someone a little less sexy please the game was very very well received i would argue that you know it was it was definitely a better game than the original but it was also a massive commercial hit it did pretty well in all the major territories it reached over 1 million units in the us 800,000 units in japan 340,000 units in in europe i mean that's just by february 1998 so that's in the next three to four months this is a huge game for the playstation i didn't actually realize how big of a game it was i i I played the the original Crash Bandicoot. It was one of the first games I had for my PlayStation in that big sort of like dub, double disc game case, even though it's only actually got one disc in it, right? I didn't play Crash 2. My friend had it, but I actually didn't play Crash 2. So I don't think I ever really fully appreciated how big of a game this was until I was reading up on it in preparation for this. This is the seventh best-selling game on the PlayStation. This game was massive. It's been a weird episode for kind of like the dark side of Games Master. I mean, we've already had Khaled in the uh, the boxing challenge. But then I was reading up on Crash Bandicoot 2 and it was like, oh, regional differences. And I'm like, oh, okay, interesting. And you'd already mentioned about the concerns from Sony Japan. They had another concern because at the time this game came out, uh, there was a serial killer in Japan and... One of the death animations, which are mentioned at length in this review, was kind of the classic Wiley e. Coyote Looney Tunes, oh, squashed, so it's just his head and a pair of feet, which looked quite a bit like decapitation. And decapitation is actually one of those still fairly taboo things in Japan, which is weird given how many things in Japan aren't. But I saw this and I went, oh, that's interesting. I wonder what that case was. I'm not going to tell you the details, and I heartily recommend people don't go and look it up. It is genuinely one of those cases that could cause me to lose sleep. Yeah, don't you don't want to like Mortal Kombat development team yourself on this one. It's an easy rabbit hole to fall down. I wouldn't recommend it. Yes, yeah, the one time where the level of reading and link following that we do for this podcast has proper bitten me in the ass. But Richard does love those death animations, if anything. It's almost like the biggest selling point in the game for him. He's like, you almost want to get yourself killed just so you can see what wacky thing is going to come up next. Rob, on the other hand, is all about the gimmicks. He likes the jetpack and the surfboards and the polar bears and stuff. But I think it's Richard that sums this up best. And it's a sentiment I very much agree with because really I only played Crash 2 through the Insane trilogy that got released on the PS4. If you like the first one, you will like this. Because while this game was heavily praised when it came out, and it is, as we mentioned earlier, the seventh best-selling game on the PlayStation, Crikey, you can see the, like, those titles that the PlayStation had being the seventh best one is quite the accolade. It is more of the same. So if you do like the first one, you very much will like this second one because it is more of the same, but with a few new bells and whistles to it. And sometimes that's all you want from a sequel. You don't need it to reinvent the wheel. But a nice strong 88% there. So 
hopefully this next game, bearing in mind we've had two very bad N64 reviews, hopefully this one will fare a little better. During the production of Diddy Kong Racing, anybody who mentioned the words Mario and Kart was taken outside for an involuntary enema. Needless paranoia or sensible hygiene, you decide. As a multiplayer, this game is still thoroughly enjoyable, although it does still bear a striking resemblance to Mario Kart, which I do find off-putting. Some of the parabs are more inventive than the ones from Mario Kart. My own particular favorite were the magnets, which actually pull you forward into the position of the car that you're aiming it at, which is a great feature. My personal favorite level is the one where you're flying around down through canyons and actually fly through the carcass of a slightly dead and deceased dinosaur. It's actually quite good fun. The level itself is quite intricate and complicated and involves nice twisty turns and tunnels. I found it thoroughly enjoyable. I really like Diddy Kong Racing. Great, right? It's a very, very fun game. Would I have enjoyed it as much if it was called Wild Cartoon Kingdom? Probably not. Would I have bought it if it was called Pro-Am 64? Also probably not. But the fact that Banjo-Kazooie was being delayed and the fact that Rare then needed something to get out by Christmas... So they took their own game and they reworked it, they reskinned it, and it became Diddy Kong Racing. And this game was a lot of fun. It is often unfairly compared to Mario Kart 64, much like Banjo Kazooie is unfairly compared to Mario 64. But I would say that it does a lot of stuff that Mario Kart 64 doesn't do. I mean, for a start, there are planes in Diddy Kong Racing. It kind of does what Mario Kart will do later on in the series run, like when it gets to Mario Kart Wii, it starts introducing like elements like this. But Diddy Kong was doing it way back here in the N64. And I mean, to your point that you made there, that would you have bought this game if it was Pro-Am 64, if it was the, the Disney racing game that it was going to be? before it then became Pro-Am 64. Like, that's why they ended up putting Diddy Kong in it, because they had Pro-Am 64, which is an update of the SNES game, to sell out, you know, and this, that, and the other. But because they need this game out by Christmas, and they needed to sell well at Christmas, because Banjo-Kazooie is not going to be there for Christmas, they were like, right, well, we need an already established IP that we can put onto this to make people buy it. They went with Diddy Kong rather than Donkey Kong, because they thought that'd be a bit more fun. And they threw in their upcoming characters as part of the playable roster so banjo is in the game conquer is in the game they debuted banjo kazooie and conquer's bad fur day at e3 earlier in the year so these are kind of like the sort of unofficial debuts of these characters and you was using diddy kong as a backdoor pilot for it but yeah kind of as i said earlier diddy kong racing is effectively the sonic spinball of N64 racing games. I would love to see this game on the Switch Online. And I'm hoping the fact that Nintendo and Microsoft seem to have a kind of frenemies relationship going on means that maybe it might happen. It would be cool to see it there because I remember having great times with this game on multiplayer. I just, I really, really enjoyed it. And I, I think that they make the point here, because you're right, like it's the unfair comparisons to Mario Kart 64 are there in the same way that Mario 64 and Doom and things like that 
and it's a carting game as well, so it's going to get the comparisons. But Richard even says he thinks the weapons are better. They're a bit more creative and a bit more fun. Even the levels, because you've got those three different ways of driving around, feel different and varied. That's what Rob is talking about. Like that, that his favorite track where you're flying through that uh, dinosaur carcass is cool because then you fly up and you go through a temple and it's just, it's nice and varied. It's twisty and turny. 85%. We got a decent N64 review finally in this series and I couldn't have come for a nicer game. Again, I want this on the Switch Online because I want to go and play this now and I can't easily, certainly not as easily as I can just by picking up the Nintendo Switch. Come on, Microsoft and Nintendo, get into bed again. Throw us out a Diddy Kong baby. Well, speaking of getting into bed, what an outro we have here. So that's three shows over, only seven more Games Masters to go. That means seven weeks until television as a whole becomes duller than the Encyclopedia Britannica in a matte brown finish. See you later. The set looks beautiful. Doesn't it just at nightfall looks dead nice? Really nice. They've got that lovely, like, sort of focus fade in shots to show, like, what everything happens when this goes to dusk. And Don walks through, there's only seven more episodes to go till it becomes duller than the Encyclopedia Britannica and a Matt Brown finish. They've all got cocktails. All got cocktails. They are settling in for the evening and Dom and the Gulf Fridays walk into their little hut. And then I think they have sex with animals. See, I thought that Dom was playing them his collection of sound effect library records that he had shipped to the oh, island. Oh, I see. Because you know Dom. Dom does his radio stuff. He's had his radio gigs. What are radio gigs without soundboards, Luke? And he's having a whale of a time with that soundboard in there as well. He's had all his tapes and his records and his reel-to-reel shipped out. And he's just showing the uh, Girl Fridays a good time, showing them how much fun they can have with a comedy chicken sound effect number 37. And I'm sure there was nothing untoward outside of that. Uh, but that was episode three of series seven, Ash. Seven more to go. What did you make of this one? It was a great episode at times for all the wrong reasons. Let's start with the positives that were actually positives. The review section was great. The news section was wonderful. I had a great old time talking about that. I'm looking at the runtime of this record. It's going to be a chonky old edit to get through. And the banter, the banter between Dom and Rick and Dom and Kirk was all great stuff. And the, just the jokes in general really, really landed. And then we get to the challenges. Now, the GoldenEye challenge was fun. Not necessarily for the right reasons, but it was fun. A very high civilian mortality rate in that challenge. And they didn't win, but, you know, you don't win them all. And it gave us some great comedy moments, but the gameplay wasn't brilliant. And then we get to Street Fighter EX plus Alpha Algebra Edition. And as we said, it was... Scrappy. It was scrappy. It was it was basic bitch Street Fighter playing. It was not a good showing for the game and certainly didn't make the players look good. No. So I'm trying to... But, but, but then you throw in the trappings of that challenge. The boxing intro, the round cards, the ding, ding, ding. More ring jokes. I just have to wonder, where does that make me sit on the episode overall? I feel like it's another episode, like one and two, where there are real peaks and real troughs, and it's trying to work out where the median sits. 
I am in the same boat as you because I think there is a lot to like about this episode. For all of its failings, I think the GoldenEye challenge is a lot of fun because they're having a laugh. And I so I think that particularly helps. But the Street Fighter challenge, I don't think is as fun. The trappings around it are very fun, like you say, but I think the game itself, it's not made up for in the same way that the GoldenEye challenge is made up for by the people playing it. But it is also an episode that has got that big special news feature about some uncovering N64 games and some very cool reviews in the second half. So yeah, I I don't think I can go as high as I had for the other ones because I had 88 for episode two and I think I had 86 or 87, I think, for uh, episode one. And I don't think I'm higher than those. So I, I think I'm current. I'm actually might say 85 is the score I was going to go for this one. See, I was going to say, and I've got it in my notes here, it's a Diddy Kong Racing 85% for me. Yeah, totally the right score for it because there is a lot to like about this episode. It's not a bad episode by any stretch of the imagination, but it's not the strongest outing we've had for Series 7 so far. Definitely not. Uh, but that will do it for this episode thank you all so much for listening you all rule you can find us on social media on twitter at underconsolepod on instagram at under.console or you can send us an all important email to feedback at underconsultation.com or if you want to chat with us in real time chat with other listeners other fans of gaming and pop culture old and new you can do so over on our discord details of which can be found in the show notes and on social media and if you want to support this podcast monetarily you can do so over at patreon.com forward slash under console pod where you'll get access to ucp extra and ucn our monthly community show at the five pound level you'll get next week's episode one week early and ad free but ash at the ten pound level get a little bit extra what is that at the £10 level, you get our glittery golden joystick waggler mug stuffed with retro trading cards, sweeties, stickers and badges. And I wrap it up nice and tight and I take it out. I put on my coat, I put on my shoes, I pick up the parcel, I go outside, I go to the post box. But Luke, I walk past the post box, I walk past the post box and I go to the nearest drain grating and I give it to the chuds. And what they do with it from that point on, I don't know. And a shout out to those £10 backers, Zach Zanderthal, William Tom, The Amazing Cliff, Super Sexy David Fisher, Simon, Selena, Sean, Sarah, aka Pink Lithium, Richard Downer, Retro Fun for Everyone, Reese, Phil, Nick, Misha, Matty Boo, Mark, Link, Liam, Kylie, Kevin, Joe Trigg, Joe Mitchell, Joe McGonagall, Jamie, Ian Williams, Ian Roberts, I am Cheadle, Harriet Manga Girl, Gordon Dempster, Gordon Brands, Gordon Aitken, David White, David Palmer, Colin, Chrissy26, Chris, Arcadia Wild Bill, Andy, Andrew Cummings, Andrew Greenwood, Alexis, and Adam D and Adam Warrington. Thank you all so much for listening. We will see you in seven days' time. Take care, everyone. Good night. Actually, as part of an English literacy test for people earning lingish for people earning link for people learning nearly there. It's the fact I'm talking about people learning English, yeah. and I'm just like going, I've never spoken the language myself. I wasn't going to say it. It's as part of a test for people. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.